Hey there, Pastor Mark Jordan here from Hope Church. Thank you for stopping by and welcome to our online ministry. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on all the content that's released. And while you're online, visit us at our webpage at placeofhope.org. Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for Him. And we hope that this message today is helpful and inspiring for you as you continue to take your next step on your faith journey. Once again, thanks for visiting us and make sure to check us out at placeofhope.org. Well, good morning, friends and family. How are we? Great. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Doing well myself. Thank you for those of you who didn't ask. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) All joking aside. So I got a question for you this morning. How many of you deal with doubt in your life? Not as many as I thought. How many of you deal with doubt in your faith life? Sometimes? Okay. We either got a lot of, well, (laughs) I'm not going to editorialize this yet. Yeah, we'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Michelle. We we all deal with doubts, right? So uh, this would be a good time if you have not done so already. Pull out your Hope Church Plus app. We also insert our um, follow along message notes inside your info guide, and I place the links in the live stream, both for Facebook and on YouTube. If you happen to be with, being with us online, uh, so today we are talking about dealing with doubt in our faith life as part of our series on this book that we've been exploring together called Failing Faith. We all face doubts in our life, right? We all face doubts in our life and in our faith, every single one of us. And one of the things that I have come to experience in my own personal life, just when I think about how it is that I look and I deal with doubt, is that I have this sense of fear that if I confess or admit that I have doubts, that that means that my faith perhaps has failed me. Can anyone relate? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think we all at some level have a sense that if we have some doubts, then that means that we have a lack of faith. Now, in some ways, sure, I think that probably is true. But there are some things that we're going to go through today as we look at some encounters that Jesus had with some important people in the Gospels, that we will see that there is a certain amount of hope and faith with love that we can find when we are honest about our doubt— But also not just about being honest with our doubt, but what our doubt can help move us forward and closer to, okay? So uh, one thing that I want to put on the table, it's that second or the third line actually on the slide there, is I have experienced in my own personal life of faith and everything else, right, that Satan wants me to think that my doubts disqualify me from salvation, Satan, from the very beginning, the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, Satan asked, did God really say? And ever since that very first temptation with Eve and Adam, he's been trying to get within our, you know, between our ears and ask that question, did God really say? Trying to sow those seeds of doubt. And then as a result of that, that nefarious thing that he does, he wants us to be convinced that if we have questions, if we have doubts, then that means that we don't have faith. And it disqualifies us from salvation. Friends, nothing could be farther from the truth because 
We all face doubts in life and faith. The author of our book that we're going through this month, Failing Faith, talked about three basic kinds of doubt that every single person will deal with and wrestle with. Three different times of doubt, kinds of doubt. The first one, perhaps, is an intellectual doubt. So if you take that temptation that Satan gave to Eve and to Adam, did God really say? When we read the scripture, perhaps we have really wondered if God truly did create the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Did God really create six days and rest on the seventh? Did God really send a flood to the earth when it had never rained before? Did God really do that? Did Noah really build an ark? And did Noah and two by two of all the animals and his kids and everything else, did, did, did that really happen? Did Jonah really get swallowed up by a whale or a big fish? Did, did, did that really happen? And so we have these intellectual doubts that we start to allow to creep into our mind, right? Well, so did, did it really happen that way? You see, the, the slippery slope that that provides is we look at some of these Old Testament stories, these miracles, and we begin to maybe offer some rooms. Ah, maybe those are just metaphorical. Maybe those are just wisdom. Maybe those are just symbolic. But if you take the Jonah experience, for example, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man story would be like the sign that we get from Jonah, that he would go into the belly of the earth for three days, and three days later be raised again. We have to be very careful when we want to start trying to discount some of these stories that we might find hard to believe. We have to be very careful because the things that happened in the Old Testament also connect greatly with what happened in the New Testament. And if we start discounting miracles, and we start discounting things that we find hard to believe, well, our intellectual doubts may take over. And the next thing you know, we are susceptible to the devil's tempting again. What did God really say? A second kind of doubt that we may deal with is emotional doubt. These are the things that we feel. So intellectual doubt, those are the things that we think, the things that we feel. One of the common subtexts in, uh, of this book that we're looking at is the idea of suffering. I don't like the way suffering feels. Is there anyone in here who likes the way suffering feels? No. And as a result, because we don't like the way suffering feels, we feel like we should not have to suffer. It is so true, isn't it, David? We feel like we should not have to suffer. We want our faith and we want our hope in God to be like that inoculation, that vaccine against suffering and pain and struggle and strife. But Jesus told us before he went to the cross, Jesus told us, you're going to face difficulties. But whenever you face them, I want you to remember that whenever you face trouble in the world, remember that I've overcome the trouble of the world. I've overcome the trouble-causing world. So we feel this stress and strain and struggle because we don't want things like suffering to pull us back. And so that emotional doubt can come in when we are going through suffering. Did I miss the mark? Did I miss the boat? Did I misunderstand what God wanted to do to me, for me, through me, we can find ourselves struggling with emotional doubt. The third kind of doubt is moral doubt. This is hard because moral doubt tells us that the things that I don't want to be true are true might just be enough to cause me to say, this old Jesus thing, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. When we see Jesus in the scriptural teaching on things like purity and sexuality 
and the way that we consume stuff, right, from food, drugs, alcohol, everything else, the purity that God wants for us because he is holy, we don't, don't necessarily want those things to be true because they're fun, right? I can still have my cake and eat it too, right? I mean, that's, that's the approach that we take with moral doubt is I know that the scripture says these things and I know that this is what's required to follow Jesus. I just wish it wasn't so. And so we deal with moral doubt. So the author Bearden talks about three different ty- ty- types and kinds of doubt, intellectual, emotional, and moral. So I want to ask a question that I asked you a few minutes ago. Is there anyone in here who deals with doubt? A few more hands went up than, I, than the first time, but still maybe not as many as I expected, right? Uh, we, we all deal with doubt. We all deal with it. And lest we allow the temptation of the devil to continue to get us to think that if we struggle with things that we can't necessarily tie together in our mind, we don't necessarily feel in our soul, or ways that we don't want to behave that's consistent, congruent with what God has commanded us to do, that we are disqualified from salvation, we've got to be careful. One of my favorite accounts that Jesus had comes in the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter. I just want to reference this, but uh, verse 23, 24, somewhere around there, uh, a dad is dealing with his son who is stricken with what the scripture calls a demon, what we probably would know today as epilepsy. And the child constantly throws himself to the ground and the demons in him, the working within his epilepsy, are causing him to throw himself into the fire and into the water. And the dad is desperate for help and hope with his child. And he brings his son to Jesus and he says, if you can, have mercy and help us. Remember how Jesus responded to that? If you can. If you can. Father says, oh, and then Jesus follows up and says, uh, I believe you can help me with my unbelief. I believe, help me with my unbelief. We can read the, the, that account, maybe try to put some of our own inflection and thought and feeling and moral struggle in with the account that Jesus had with this father who's desperate to bring hope and healing and health to his child. And we hear Jesus ask if you can, Jesus says that everything's possible for the one who believes. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we bring our request to God that he's going to answer our prayer in the way that we expect him to. But Jesus says, if you can. The beautiful thing in that, friends, hear this with such deep passion and intensity on my part. And I'm not going to scream and pound the podium like I did last week. At least that's not in my intention. But... Jesus is like, if you can. Similar to our first message in this series with the rich young ruler. And Jesus is like, hey, I need you to move from good to God, right? Make that next step. Jesus invites the father to confront his unbelief and ask him to go all the way and say, I know you can. Now, that doesn't mean that, as I've mentioned before, God is going to answer all of our prayers the way that we would expect him to, or dare I say, demand him to. But Jesus says everything is possible for the one who believes. It's possible. So when Jesus asks that question in return, if I can, hear that as an invitation to investigate the authority that Jesus has over the heavens and the earth and everything else. Even if he may not respond the way that we would request or demand him to. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. 
I've prayed that prayer a lot in my life and a lot even in these last few days. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. So today we are talking about Jesus and how he offers us an invitation to investigate. Not to condemn us because of the doubts or the questions that we might have, but to hear a welcome and a warmth that comes with recognizing that he is someone who can help. What Jesus wants us to do is to move beyond just a recognition into a confession. He wants us to move beyond our own sense of needing comfort and control to surrender to our Savior. And so Jesus wants us to hear and to heed this invitation to investigate, yes, even our own doubts and even our own worries. Jesus wants us to hear that with warmth and not condemnation. And I hope that you can and we all can together. So our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 24 through 31. Uh, And if you're turning to your scripture, your phone, your tablet, whatever else, this is the account between Jesus and Thomas, the disciple who I've come to know as who? Doubting Thomas, right? Boy, I'm sure glad that um, I haven't been given every moniker that I might have had in um, some of my initial interactions with the Lord. Because I don't know that, you know, that they would be as friendly as doubting. But here we go. So this is what we see in this account with Jesus and doubting Thomas. Now Thomas was one of the twelve, talking about the twelve disciples. He was also called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. Now this, just pressing pause really quickly to give you some context. When, he's, when John is telling us here that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus came, he's talking about when he first came in the room on Resurrection Sunday morning or Easter morning. Right? So Thomas, for whatever reason, whether he was in grief, whether he was in doubt, whether he struggled, whatever, Thomas was not with the rest of the disciples when Jesus appeared to them on Resurrection Day. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark, um, and place hit my hands into his side, sorry, I will never believe I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for God's people. Let's give thanks to God. Amen. So we see this interaction, this encounter that Jesus has with doubting Thomas. Thomas was not unlike you, I would probably be, a week after having witnessed Jesus' torture and execution and death on the cross. Thomas was despondent. He was doubting, but I don't think it was an unnatural amount of doubt. Now, when Thomas hears that Jesus had appeared to the rest of the disciples when he wasn't there, Thomas was probably coming from a point of view like, well, that's just too good to believe. Because I saw with my own two eyes him nailed to that cross. I saw with my own two eyes him get 
pierced with the spear. I saw with my own two eyes him laid in a tomb. And you're telling me that just a couple days later, he showed up in this room with you. Well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see the wounds in his hand and in his side. Thomas is issuing his doubt here. But what he's also doing is confirming that he knew what he saw was true, that Jesus was betrayed and crucified and dead and buried. So Thomas is saying, I recognize this stuff to be true. Now there's a little nugget in here for people who say, yeah, Jesus really didn't suffer like he said he suffered or he said he was going to suffer. Maybe he just kind of passed out on the cross and he got up a couple of days later. No, we're getting through Thomas here, a very specific and very detailed incident about what Jesus went through so that when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas would have something else to see and to believe. Now, eight days later, Thomas is with the other disciples. The door was locked and Jesus appeared. Now, John, who also wrote Revelation, talks a little bit about how doors are locked in Revelation chapter 3. He talks about how Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks, waiting to be let in. Could it be that what we see here isn't just that the doors of the upper room were locked, but Thomas's heart was locked as well? Has your heart ever been locked up because of doubt or discouragement or grief or despair or anxiety or depression or addiction or betrayal? Has your heart ever been locked off, walled off, closed off to the miracles that God might want to perform in your life? I think so. I think we all probably have experienced an intentional locking of the door to our heart because of the junk that we've gone through in life. And so Jesus shows up and invites Thomas to investigate. But there's something unique that Bearden points out in the chapter that we're dealing with, uninvited to investigate, is Thomas says, if I could just touch the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, I believe. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't say touch, he says put. In the original Greek, what we read is put your hand here. I'm sorry, in the English translation, but in the original Greek, Jesus is saying, shove your hands into my hands, wounds. Shove your hand into my side. Come to me with your doubts, with your questions, with your worries, with your wonder, with confidence, with boldness. Shove your hand in there. Know that I am real. Know that I am really standing here before you. Shove your doubt into my presence. Friends, that'll preach all day long, won't it? How often do we come to Jesus so tenderly with our doubts? I'm afraid, Jesus, that you're going to, to know what you already know about me. I'm afraid to get called out in my doubt. Jesus invites us. Don't just touch. Shove your hand in there. Be confident. Be bold. Because with the question and with the doubt, when we bring them to Jesus, my friends, please hear this. We bring them as a statement of faith. We believe that there is a Jesus to shove our hand into his side, his hands. Satan wants to try to convince you that your questions, your doubts mean that Jesus isn't real. Jesus is like, no, you're almost there. Take that next step. Be bold. Come to me. Allow my presence and my power to overwhelm your doubt and your fear. I invite you to investigate.
boldness, with confidence. Friends, that gives me incredible hope. It doesn't answer every question I have. It doesn't solve every query. But what it does do is it helps me to know that even when I am wrestling and worried about my own doubt, whether it's intellectual, emotional, or moral, that there's a God there who is listening to my queries and ready to provide the evidence, either that he's going to work things out the way that he promised to or that I can have patience and faith in him until I can understand what he's doing. Even our doubts can be a statement of faith. Thomas's life was changed, but maybe not as dramatically and immediately as we would expect. As the disciples made their decisions and their assignments to go back out into the world to, to do the Great Commission as Jesus said, go out into the world, Thomas was assigned his missionary journey to go to India. Thomas didn't want to go to India. India was some 7,500 miles away from where they were in Jerusalem. And he felt that his strength or his health or whatever reason, for whatever reason, he just wasn't able to make that 7,500-mile journey from Jerusalem to India. And, uh, well, God God saw to it that he did. Jesus came to Thomas in a vision and said, Thomas, I really need you to go to India. And Thomas said, I don't wanna. So Thomas ends up getting sold into slavery. And where do you think he ended up? Did someone say India? He ended up in India. And he becomes a slave to the king in India. And the king says, I want you to build me an eternal palace. And he gives all this money to Thomas to build the palace for him. This is how Thomas becomes known as the patron saint of architects. Because the king in India wanted Thomas to build an eternal palace that would never end. Thomas beginning to sense that God was up to something. He took that money that the king gave him and he he used it to begin to meet the poor where they were. To meet their needs and to do the things that he had learned from Jesus and the other disciples. The king calls Thomas back in. And says, I asked you to build me a palace. Asked you to build me something that won't end. And Thomas's response was something to the effect of the, the palace that I am building and I'm working on is one for heaven and not here because of what I saw Jesus do. And Thomas was probably reminded in those moments what we read in John chapter 14 where Jesus told the disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. Who asked the question? We don't know where we're going. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a mansion for where I am, you may I be also. Thomas was released from slavery by the sovereignty of God. And some four million people in India became Christian. Just from Thomas's ministry, 26 million people throughout India came to have faith in Christ. Jesus had his way with Thomas and in his life. Thomas was looking for comfort and control, and Jesus wanted him to bring surrender. And so, we're going to go through these next three points fairly quickly. 
But what I want you to feel and to hear and to know as we do is that there is hope for every single one of us where we can bring our doubts to Christ from an invitation to investigate and find in him the hope that leads to life everlasting. So doubts often bring shame. We mentioned that Satan wants to try to convince us that if we have doubts or questions or wonders and worries that we don't have faith. Now, Thomas got labeled as a doubter, which is probably unfair to him because Thomas represents the doubt that we experience all of us in our lives. Intellectual doubt, emotional doubt, moral doubt. And so what we can learn from the encounter that Jesus had with the father who had the epileptic son as well as the encounter that Jesus had with Thomas is that doubt is not necessarily skepticism or unbelief. It can be a catalyst for faith renewal. Because like I said a few moments ago, if we are bringing our doubts and our wonders and our questions and our queries to Jesus, it comes with a with the statement of faith that there is a God there to hear us and to help us and to hold us and heal us. It comes as a statement of faith. And so Jesus encourages us to bring our doubts to him. Jesus met Thomas at the point of his doubt, and he invited him to investigate. And so if Thomas, who was with Jesus for the three some odd years of his earthly ministry, if Thomas was invited to bring his doubts, even with everything that he had seen and done and witnessed and participated in himself, if Jesus brings him the invitation to investigate, he's doing the same thing for you and for me. You can bring your doubt to God knowing that he longs to guide you toward belief. Remember the, the question that Jesus asked when the dad said, if you can, help me. She's like, if I can? Oh, I could do far greater things than you would ever believe. It's not always going to happen and work out the way that you want, but have faith and trust and hope that God's way is the right way. And so we may not be able to see Jesus, but we can find reassurance from those who did. This is the essence of the encounter after Jesus said, shove your hand in my hand, shove your hand in my side. Some people think that they must see to believe, but Jesus says, there's some things you have to believe in order to see. So sometimes that invitation to investigate has to come back to that sense of faith. You're telling me you need to see to believe and Jesus is saying I'm telling you you need to believe in order to see. And so we allow ourselves to work out our doubts with faith to find the answers that we need. Don't allow the twisted temptations of the evil one to get you to think that your questions, your doubts, your worries, your wondering, your, all those things disqualify you from salvation. It's a pathway to help you get from where you are to where you need to be. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, one of these verses that I hold on to a lot, particularly when I'm feeling especially vulnerable with my doubts and my wonders and my worries. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul's talking to here is, how, is the Philippians. He's recognizing that it might have been easier for them 
to continue to work and walk in their life of faith when he was there with them, leading them and guiding them and directing them and teaching them. But he's telling them, the real fruit of your faith is now growing and blooming, and it's being prepared to uh, be harvested by what you do, not just because I'm right there in your midst, but because you know it's the right thing to do. Because you know that even when you have intellectual, emotional, or moral questions about what it is that God has commanded, you know it to be right. And so confront your doubt, yes, with boldness and with confidence, but also with some fear and trembling. Because we need to acknowledge that we are always going to be prone to those questions that did God really say. And even when you reach certain stages and levels of conviction in your faith... Someone may come to you and say, how can a good God allow bad things to happen in the world? And we see things like what Brent shared at the beginning of the service about what happened in India. I don't know. I don't like the way it feels. And sometimes I struggle with even the moral implication of continuing to do the right thing when it's the hard thing. Because it runs in direct contradiction to my need for control and comfort as opposed to a call to surrender in faith and hope and in love. So my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to hear this invitation today. To come forward in your faith or even just physically here to kneel about our stage, altar, whatever you want to call it, and hear Christ's invitation to investigate. Maybe you've been concerned that some of the questions and the doubts that you have about things that you know, things that you feel, or things that you wish were true that aren't, you need to come and do some, some work with God. And as we come, chances are we're going to come with some timidity and trepidation. If I could just, you know, touch Jesus has come forward, move beyond that fear and trembling, and with boldness and with confidence, shove your hand into my hand, your hand into my side. Come, confront your doubt, and find the answer to your question in him. Is he able? Oh yeah, and so much more. Pray with me, please. Living and loving God, I thank you for today, and I thank you for how you've met us here. I am quite sure, certain just because of how I felt when I walked through the doors this morning that sometimes I just don't know how you are at work, where you're at work, when you're at work, or why you're working things the way that you are. And Lord, forgive us for how we can allow in those times those questions and those doubts to be a fertile ground for Satan to come and Convince us that we've missed the mark, misunderstood your will, your way, and your word. And so, Lord God, may we come to you even with our questions with confidence. You aren't going to condemn us or cast us out because we ask questions. You rejoice in the fact that we believe that you were there to hear our questions and to provide us an answer. And so, Lord God, may we seek out those answers this morning, even in those times when the answer may not come on our timeline or according to our demands. Help us to find the assurance 
and knowing that you are in charge. You are sovereign. We can surrender our need for comfort and control to you. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Professing my belief and confessing my unbelief and seeking his help in the middle of it all. Amen and amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We are glad that you stopped by. Again, we want to encourage you to visit us online at placeofhope.org. If you're in the Paulding County area there, you can get service times, directions, and information about all of our awesome activities for children, for students, and for adults. Again, Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for him, and we hope to provide you the heart fuel you need to follow Jesus. Thanks again.